Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this sermon from God's Word will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. I'm so thankful we have a God we can trust. He knows all things, and He's given us precious promises in His Word, which remind us to trust in Him in our times of fear. And we've all been there. We've all faced those times of fear. Fear is a powerful emotion. It can shape not only the, the big experiences of life, the big things we face, but it can shape even the way we look at the little decisions of life. Without knowing it, fear can shape the way we view things and what we choose and how we act and how we respond. The Lord is clear in His Word. He does not want us to be a people who are gripped by fear. Instead, His promises are to set us at ease, to help us to trust Him in what would be our times of fear. The Apostle Paul faced such a time of fear, and though Luke doesn't highlight it directly here in Acts chapter 18, we learn from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when Paul writes about his entrance to Corinth. That this was indeed a time of fear and trembling, and it's obvious when the Lord Jesus comes to Paul in Acts 18, 9, and 10, that Paul was afraid, and Jesus came to encourage him. Look at those verses with me in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. They become kind of a centerpiece of this text. Now, the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, "'Do not be afraid, but speak.'" And do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. The Lord Jesus gives Paul a number of promises here. The the key promise is there at the beginning of verse 10, for I am with you. And he goes on to describe how he will protect him there in Corinth. No one would attack him to harm him. And he also mentions his his power there in Corinth. He says, I have many people in this city. The Lord is in charge. It's his church. And he's there with Paul helping him. Now, this is all good and great for the Apostle Paul, right? It's a great promise for him. But what about us? Is this true for us? Well, certainly the latter portion of the promise that no one here in Corinth will attack you or hurt you, have many people in the city, that's obviously very specific to this scenario for the Apostle Paul in Corinth. But I think what we're going to see as we work through this text, we'll address some corollary promises in Scripture and understand that, yes, indeed, actually the Lord's presence is promised to us. The Lord's provision is promised to us. And the Lord's protection is promised to us. We have sure and precious promises. In fact, maybe we'll reference most frequently today the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Because like Paul, who needed to get back to his mission, keep speaking, I am with you, don't be silent, keep speaking. The Lord Jesus gives a similar promise to his disciples in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, where he tells them, go therefore and make disciples. Now again, we could ask that question, is that just for the 11? 
Well, the verse there in Matthew 20 actually, actually implies that it's for all of us because Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. So the verse itself is self-perpetuating. As we make disciples, those next disciples receive the commands and promises of the Lord, and so on and so forth, that, that flows. In fact, Jesus intends that to continue because at the end of those two verses, He says, And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So that command, to make disciples, which is to be repeated again and again, to the end of the age, which we're still in, Jesus says, behold, I am with you always. So, though we're not in the exact situation that Paul is there in Corinth, we can relate to what he's going through, a place where fears can grip us, but at the same time we need to lean on the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am with you. And as we do that, we overcome our fears, get back to our mission to make disciples. So that's the theme we'll use as we work through this text today. As we make disciples, as we stay on mission, as we do what God has called us to do, we overcome our fears by trusting the promises of the Lord Jesus. When we lean back on His promises, we have all we need to overcome those fears that will confront us through life, the unknowns, the question marks, the things we don't understand. We lean on His Word And we trust Him so we can stay on task. As we work through this text, you're going to notice a number of ways that God provides for the Apostle Paul. And God is doing it even before this promise in verses 9 and 10 comes. God's already taking care of him. It's not like it just started once Jesus came in the vision and gave him this promise. God had already been taking care of Paul. Notice how this comes up. First in verses 1 through 5, we're going to see the provision of God for the Apostle Paul. And as we trust God's provision, His promised provision, we can devote ourselves to sharing the Word. It's actually when we trust the Lord that we're free to stop worrying about ourselves and to commit ourselves to serving and accomplishing our mission. Notice how this happens for the Apostle Paul. There in verse 1, Paul departs from Athens and goes to Corinth. And so let's pause and check our map out and see if we can remember where Paul has been and where he's going. You may remember uh, two weeks ago, we were with Paul in Athens and in Acts chapter 17, right? There's this encounter there in Athens and uh, he, he has an opportunity to preach and to call them to turn from idolatry to trust in God. He leaves Athens and heads west to the city of Corinth right here. Corinth is actually quite a bit larger than Athens, Just like Athens was kind of given over to idolatry, Corinth was given over to idolatry and sin in some very strong ways. In fact, it was the location of the temple to Aphrodite, who was a goddess of love and fertility. And so you can imagine the the sexual sins that had grown there in the city and become commonplace among the people. It was a dark, dark place. And so Paul is there, And imagine in a new location, even darker than Athens, he's somewhat intimidated by his context. But notice already in verse 2, God provides for Paul. 
And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who'd recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla uh, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. Paul finds some friends. He finds friends. We don't know uh, whether uh, Aquila and Priscilla were believers yet at this point. We know that they do become believers because they participate in disciple-making down in Acts 18, verse 26, a text we'll, we'll look at next week, Lord willing. They're helping to disciple somebody else. So they, at some point along the way, they come to faith in Christ. At least here, they're friends. Jews who understand the ways of Judaism, maybe those who've already trusted in Christ. And on top of that, verse 3 tells us they're of the same trade. Paul finds commonplace here. We learn in some of other, Paul's other letters that at this point in Corinth, not only is he in a new location, Not only is he in a dark place, but he's short on funds. There's a period of time when he uh, kind of ran out of support from churches and had to rely on working with his own hands. And this is where a term uh, used in current day missiology comes from. Maybe you've heard it before, tent-making missionary. It means that somebody who's on the field seeking to reach people for Christ has to work at the same time. And the term comes from this text right here, where we learn that Paul, in order to earn an income, made tents. We don't know exactly what kind of tents those were, whether he was working with canvas. In fact, the term could be broad enough to refer to working with leather as well. But Paul had to work with his hands in order to earn an income, in order to support the ministry. And he was encouraged by his friends, Aquila and Priscilla, already established in the area, Uh, As we look at history, this Edict of Claudius came in about AD 49 or 50, and so that's kind of a fun uh, historical marker in the book of Acts here. Paul connects with them. They help him start making an income, and, and he finds some friends to help him get established there in Corinth. God is providing for Paul behind the scenes. So, verse 4, he reasons in the synagogue every Sabbath, Working where he can to make an income, he persuades both Jews and Greeks. But then there's more encouragement that comes in verse 5. Silas and Timothy come down from Macedonia, where Paul had left them. And uh, we learn in other texts, uh, as Paul writes, that they brought with them a financial gift. Because of that gift, Paul was able to work a little bit less at the tent making and get back to preaching. And so in verse 5, Luke tells us, uh, in the New King James, it's translated that Paul was compelled by the Spirit. Some translations may say he was, he devoted himself more fully to the Word. And there are some variants in the original uh, texts, or, the, or the, the manuscripts, excuse me. And uh, some say he was compelled by the Spirit. Some say he was uh, more devoted to the Word. Uh, I don't think the difference really matters. Both probably happened. Because of the funds that came in, Paul devoted himself more and more to preaching and less to tent making. It wasn't about making an income. It was about preaching the Word. And so the Spirit compelled him and helped him as he testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. So, There's Paul in Corinth. We learn that he's facing fears and trials, and God's providing for him behind the scenes. First, some friends who can help him get established, help him make an income with his tent making, and then Silas and Timothy arrive with money to help support him so Paul can keep preaching, devoting himself to preaching the Word. God provides for Paul, and as 
Paul trusts God's provision. He's able to more freely devote himself to sharing the Word. When we know that God has provided all that we need, it empowers us to stop worrying about ourselves and to focus on what God wants us to do, and to focus on the task at hand. Not too long ago, Carrie's sister got married, and we were able to go to the wedding and help at the rehearsal dinner. And our task was to get ice cream for the end of the meal. And uh, so this was down in, in, in Texas, so Carrie and I found a local grocery store, and we're trying to estimate how many people are going to be there, and so we're picking up different kinds of ice cream. And, you know, when you're dealing with ice cream, the rule is always make sure you have plenty, right? Uh, and so we're looking through the store, there's different, different flavors of ice cream, and it's kind of like, well, sure, pick up a gallon of that, somebody might like that flavor, and then there's this kind, oh yeah, sure, pick up a gallon of that, somebody might like that, and, and so, you know, pretty soon we have a cart full of ice cream, I don't know, is it going to be enough? Uh, we'll see, we're not sure how many are coming, and well, we'll go with it. So we brought our ice cream to the dinner and packed the freezer with ice cream, and it came time for uh, the meal to be done and for the ice cream to, to come out. And, uh, and so we began opening the containers and getting scoops out and starting to serve people. And, you know, we worked through about a half of one gallon and, a, you know, maybe the top third of another gallon of this gallon, whatever flavors they wanted. And so we, we made it down a little bit and, you know, we hadn't even touched the other gallons in the freezer. And so we're kind of looking around the room where are the rest of the people? There's got to be more people who need to come get ice cream here. We haven't made it very far. Well, everybody had already gotten their ice cream, and we'd only made it partway through the first three gallons that we had bought. And so we're scratching our heads going, hmm, I think we got too much ice cream. But is there really such a thing as too much ice cream? No, there's not. So we began recruiting people to come back for seconds. We have tons of ice cream. Come on, you know, walking around with our scoops. Let me give you another scoop. You need some more of this one here, you know, and giving away ice cream because what are we going to do with it? We're, we're, we're heading out of town in a few days. We can't take the ice cream with it. It, it would melt on the plane. We did think about that, but it, it's just not going to work. So we had to give it. We're sending gallons home with people. Take the ice cream with you. Right. Why? Because there's just an abundance of provision. And so we're just freely giving away ice cream, throwing scoops of ice cream at people. Well, we didn't actually get that far, but when you know you have plenty, right, your focus isn't on like, oh, am I going to get enough ice cream? Did I get the flavor that I want? I mean, there was, there was no question. There was plenty. So our focus was entirely on get rid of the ice cream, give the ice cream. This is what God's provision does for us. Right? When, when we trust that He fully will meet our needs, we then can devote ourselves to giving to others. And not just giving financially or or ice cream, but doing what God's called us to do, giving the Word, like Paul does here in Corinth, where his focus was then on preaching the Scriptures, preaching the Gospel, proving that Jesus is the Christ and for, for a time he had to work, but as soon as the f- enough funds came in, he was back at it and devoted himself more fully to preaching the word. I wonder if our lives are focused that way, that as we trust that God will provide for us, we devote ourselves more fully to our task, making disciples. God has promised to meet our needs perfectly. In fact, when Paul wrote to the Philippians, which was likely one of the churches that sent this gift to help Paul, one of the churches in Macedonia that sent this money, 
Paul writes back to them and encourages them in Philippians 4.19 and says, My God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. God's provision is promised to all believers, not just Paul. Because God perfectly meets our needs, this frees us to stop thinking about ourselves and to devote ourselves to serving the Lord. Life is actually about sharing the word, about making disciples, not about making money. If we need to work to live, fine. But as the Lord provides, we continually devote ourselves to His mission for each one of us to make disciples and build His church as He has promised. So the question we keep asking is, how can I give myself more and more to my calling to tell the world that Jesus is the Savior? There are many fears associated with this kind of living. Will I have enough? Will God meet my needs? What's going to happen? How's it going to turn out? But we go back to the promises of the Lord Jesus to us. We trust His Word, and there we find what we need to stay obedient to Him. The Apostle Paul noticed the Lord's provision, but as we continue in the text, we notice in verses 6 through 8 that Paul then faces opposition. Not everything's going as planned. Well, if you've been tracking with us through the book of Acts, you could make the argument that maybe he should have expected the opposition here, right? It tends to be some point in each one of these cities when he gets pushed back from the people who don't believe. And we notice that in verse 6. They opposed him. They blasphemed. Now, Paul, responding to that in verse 6, says to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. The temptation would have been to change his tactic, to change his method, right? Uh, To say, well, this isn't working, so I'll try something else. But the Apostle Paul trusts the Lord. He's done his part. He's been faithful to preach and now entrusts them to the Lord's judgment. You're responsible for your choice, Paul says to them. I've given you the gospel. You must either believe it or reject it, and you'll be held accountable for that. But Paul doesn't change his method. He continues preaching. In verses 7 and 8, he goes to the Gentiles. He moves next to the synagogue to the house of a man named Justus, who's a worshiper of God, and he continues preaching. And you notice there in verse 8, that the ruler of the synagogue actually comes to faith in Jesus Christ. As Paul trusts the power of God, the gospel still goes forth, and even the ruler of the synagogue, a Jew, comes to faith in Christ. Many other Corinthians believe as well. And after trusting in Christ as Savior, they publicly declare their faith in Christ by being baptized. So the gospel is going forward. What we learn from these verses is that when we trust God's power, we can focus on being faithful. Rather than being deterred by the rejection of the Jews, the Apostle Paul trusts the Lord. He's the judge. He's the one to whom Paul looks for approval. And so he keeps preaching. Well, the Jews are rejecting, so I'll just go to the Gentiles next. And he keeps preaching, keeps being faithful, trusting the power of God to convert sinners. And Paul stays on mission. 
While the Apostle Paul was in Corinth, it's likely during that time that he wrote the epistles to the churches in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. And there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, the Apostle Paul comments about his own perspective on preaching. Listen to this. He says, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. See, the Apostle Paul wasn't worried about the response of people. He was worried about pleasing the Lord. He trusted in the power of God, the authority of God, the rule of God, and that kept him faithful to his task to continue preaching. When we trust God's power, we can focus on being faithful. Maybe some of you watched the coronation of King Charles. Uh, I think it was yesterday at some point. I didn't watch it. I read a, read a summary of the events, but uh, a very fascinating uh, event there in Great Britain. Uh, and as you maybe watch videos of what happened, one of the things that I always enjoy taking note of are the royal guards dressed in their bright red with the big black caps on the top. They're one of the most recognizable uh, type of guards, you know, in the world because they Well, it's kind of a funny outfit, if we're being honest, right? And so they're easily recognizable, but one of the things that always stands out about them is their devotion to their focus on the task. And so whether it's the royal guard, you know, stationed outside of the palace, or the march that you may have seen in the coronation yesterday as they they track after uh, the procession of the king, They're focused on their task. And one of the things that tourists and others like to do is try to distract them. And so there are all sorts of stories and photos of tourists trying to distract the guards from their task, you know, whispering things in their ears or, you know, distracting them, getting pictures with them while they just stand and, you know, stare right ahead and uh, trying to draw them away from their focus. And, of course, it's all done and fun and so forth. But they, they remain focused. Watched one recently where they actually did get the royal guard to respond. Uh, somebody got too close. I think maybe she put her arm on or put her hands on his arm or something like that. And so he did this uh, movement with his gun where he moved it over here between him and her. And uh, she just like jumped and screamed and ran off. It was kind of hilarious, actually. But uh, so you can get them to move. But why are they so focused? Why are they so determined to ignore the people around them and to stay on task? Because they serve a more powerful king, right? Now, not God, but they serve somebody who can take their job away or throw them in prison or whatever else could happen there. And so they have in mind the higher authority. And so they don't really care what the people say or do around them because their minds are on the one they're serving. See, in the Christian life, we can get so easily distracted with those around us and what people think. We can begin to fear men. The Apostle Paul here looks to the power of God. He fears the Lord, and so his focus is to continue being obedient to Him in all of his preaching, to be faithful, to please the Lord. When we worry about what people think, we get distracted. When we worry about methodology, we get distracted. We have to do it this way or that way, or the church, this church does this or that church does that. 
But friends, it's important that we just focus on what the Lord has told us to do. When we worry about pragmatism, we get distracted. Well, we did this one time and it worked. Maybe we should do it again. Or we've never tried that before. We're not sure that it's going to work. We, we worry about whether things will work or not. But when we focus on what the Lord has told us, the results aren't nearly as important as whether we're pleasing the Lord. Churches can easily fall into what could be called event-based ministry, where we begin trusting in big events to reach people, big things to happen in the life of the church. But as we go through the Scriptures, the big events that the Scriptures describe are pretty much just the weekly gatherings of the church for the preaching and teaching of the Word and the ordinances. This is God's plan to grow His church. And so we lean back on what God says, and we seek to be faithful to please Him, rather than worrying about what people think. When we trust God's power and the fact that everyone is accountable to God, then we can focus on being faithful. It sets our fears at ease as we seek to please the Lord. As the Apostle Paul would later write to this very church, we make it our aim to please Him, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. As we trust the Lord, as we trust His power, we can keep Him as our focus. As we come to the next section, we come to the very promise of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Apostle Paul in verses 9 through 11. And I think this is referring to Jesus when it refers to the Lord, because in the book of Acts, that's the most common reference. When it says the Lord, it's referring to the Lord Jesus. And so, in a vision, Jesus comes to Paul and encourages him with the words that we've already looked at. But I want you to notice Paul's response in verse 11. He continued there in Corinth a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. So, the Lord's promise, the Lord's encouragement to Paul empowered him to continue teaching in Corinth for a year and a half, pressing on, speaking the Word, watching as God was at work. What we see, number three this morning, is that when we trust God's presence, we can speak with confidence. Jesus had come to Paul and told him, I am with you. Do not keep silent. Keep speaking. Why? Because I am with you. The very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ was enough for Paul to keep going. Not only do we notice God's presence, but we notice also His protection. No one will hurt you, Jesus says. We notice His providence. I have many people in this city. You see, it's Jesus' church. He's promised to build it. And he wants Paul not to fear, but to be faithful, to keep preaching. And Paul does exactly that. Speaking in front of people can indeed be frightening. Uh, Some of you have had the opportunity to stand up in front of a crowd and have to share something. I am privileged to do this every week, but I still get nervous. It's still a little bit scary. Now, the more you get to know the people to whom you're speaking, the more it becomes kind of like a personal conversation. And you can look around the room and know the faces to whom you're talking, and there's relationship there, and it's a great encouragement. 
Some of the scariest times for me to preach are when I'm preaching to an unfamiliar audience. And I've had opportunities to preach at camps or conferences where you, know, you stand up and I, I find teens to be the scariest, right? <laughs> what are they thinking? Will they laugh at my jokes, right? These are the questions that run through your head and you look out of the audience and you don't know any of them. I can remember one particular occasion speaking at a large camp in a room full of teens out there and I was so thankful. I got up to preach and, and uh, as I was looking, scanning the room, Carrie happened to be with me on the trip, and so my eyes at some point landed on her, the familiar face. Ah, all right, somebody I know, and she was smiling back at me, and like, okay, Lord, help me, we can do this, all right? And so we press on and preach, and at least Carrie laughed at my jokes, and so <laughs> that was helpful. Her presence was an encouragement to me, but it shouldn't just end there, right? My thoughts could have even gone to the Lord Jesus Christ who has promised to be with us. Even here now in this room, by His Spirit, right? He said to us, where two or three are gathered in my name, what did He say? I am there with you. He's present. We're never alone. Never have to wonder if He's near. He's promised to be there. And His presence gives us confidence to keep doing what He's called us to do. Not only to stop being afraid, but then to step forward by faith and do the things that He's asked us to do, like making disciples, like telling the world that Jesus is the Savior, and so on and so forth. When we trust His presence, we can speak with confidence. Jesus has promised His presence and His care in our lives. We know that He will keep us from the evil one. And though there may be times of suffering, there may be times of difficulty, and we know many of us will have to face death in this life, the Lord Jesus, our Good Shepherd, walks with us through all of that and will not allow the evil one to harm us. He's promised us that. And He will carry us through to His presence forevermore. He holds us fast, as we sung already today. And so His presence and care and these promises help us to be faithful and obedient as we walk through this life. When we trust His presence, we can speak with confidence. As we make disciples, we overcome our fears by trusting Jesus' promises. You've got this because He's got you. We come to the final section here, and in 12 through 17, there's just an interesting highlight that I think Luke is intentional about bringing up. Almost in every one of verses 12 through 17, there's some kind of legal or justice term that comes up here. And it's really interesting how it rises our focus to justice, and we're going to notice how in the lives of the Jews who bring this charge against Paul, there's injustice. We're going to notice how in the Roman Empire, the proconsul of Rome here, who's, it, 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 there's injustice as well. And yet the Apostle Paul endures all of that, I think, because he trusts in the Lord. Notice how this unfolds in verse 12. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia... And for a side note there, Corinth was the capital of that region, and so was where Gallio was 
located. The Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. There's our first legal justice term. The term is actually bima. Maybe you've heard that before uh, as, a, as a Christian term because the Apostle Paul later, when writing to the Corinthians, will use that term about the judgment seat of Christ when believers will stand before the Lord Jesus. And it's the very context that I quoted earlier when the Apostle Paul says, therefore we make it our aim to please Him. Why? Because we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema. That's the very word that's used here. And so I wonder if there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if the Apostle Paul had this scene in mind as he wrote those words later. So here's Paul before the Corinthian judgment seat, the Roman judgment seat, and Gallio is about to make his verdict. The Jews bring this charge in verse 13. This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now, Rome did allow other religions, but they had to be approved religions. Judaism was approved. And to this point, Christianity had kind of been viewed as like a subset of Judaism, and so it was considered legal. But the Jews are raising an important question, one that will continue to rise to the surface in the Roman Empire. Will Christianity be allowed as a subset of Judaism? Will it be allowed as its own religion, or will it be illegal to be a Christian? And so that's all kind of in question here, and this is a big deal as they bring this charge to Gallio against the Apostle Paul. He's persuading them to worship God unlawfully. Paul, verse 14, is about to give his defense, but Gallio doesn't even allow it. He's just straight to the Jews. He says, if this were a matter of wrongdoing, and there again we have our legal terms, matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews. There'd be reason why I should bear with you, verse 15. But if a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves. So Gallio's determination is, look, this is just your own matter here. I don't need to be judging this. This has to do with your religion and your law. Uh, Get out of here and figure this out on your own is kind of what he's saying there. And so, verse 16, he drives them away from the judgment seat. And again, there's that term, bima. So verse 17, the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat, but Gallio took no notice of these things. Verse 17 uh, is an interesting verse. The, the, the Greeks, so they're not, they're not Jews, they're not believers, the others who are watching this, they actually capture Sosthenes, and we're told that he's the new ruler of the synagogue. Remember, back in verse 8, which now is a year and six months ago, (laughs) Crispus had been the ruler of the synagogue, and he'd come to faith in Christ. So, of course, the Jews had to find a new ruler of the synagogue. His name was Sosthenes. So this man is actually, I don't think, a Christian. I think he's a Jew. And the Corinthians are so perturbed that the Jews have brought this matter to Gallio and you know, wasted his time, so to speak, that they have the Jewish ruler of the synagogue beaten. So this is an example not of Christian persecution, but actually of Jewish persecution. And it's a reminder that even if Christianity were to be accepted as a subset of Judaism, there was a large degree of anti-Semitism in ancient Rome. 
Of course, we saw that in Jesus' life. The Jews were often mistreated by the Roman Empire. And here's a case of that. Sosthenes, the Jewish ruler's synagogue, is beaten. And Gallio, it says, takes no notice of these things. Now, the combination of all these legal terms, the bema seat and the law and justice and wrongdoings and crimes, all these terms sprinkled throughout here, highlight a focus on justice, but at the same time, they highlight the injustice that is actually taking place. So first, the Jews are bringing an unjust charge before Gallio. The Apostle Paul is actually teaching the right way to worship God. But not only that, Gallio, the authority, is unjust in the way that he treats the Jews and takes no notice as they beat Sosthenes. So all of this injustice is going on, and yet the Apostle Paul kind of rides through it all as God watches out for him. God's justice reigns over it all. When we trust God's justice, we can endure injustice. There will be injustices that take place around us. Not everything will be fair and right. It's part of our fallen condition in this world. But as we look to the justice of God, we can press forward and endure injustices, looking forward to the true judge, God the Father. We can look to the Lord Jesus Christ for help in this very situation. As Jesus faced his own unjust trial, we're told in 1 Peter chapter 2 where the Lord Jesus kept his focus during that very injustice. It says that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges justly. As Jesus walked through the injustice of his own trial, he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. And I think that's what we see in Paul's life here, is he trusts the promises of God that there would one day be a bema seat, that there would be also the great white throne judgment, that the God of the universe is still on the throne and will judge all things. As we think about the justice of God, it's important for me to pause and ask you whether you are right with the true judge of the universe. Because there is coming a day when we will all be judged. There is a great division. Those who have God's righteousness will enter God's presence in heaven for eternity. Those who do not will spend eternity in separation from God. And both parties will stand before God and be judged. And so the question is, are you right with God? If you were to stand before God today, could you claim perfect righteousness before Him? Well, I think anyone can say pretty obviously, no. Of ourselves, we... We don't have perfect righteousness. We cannot attain to God's holy standard. We would be condemned as sinners. But that's where we look again to the Lord Jesus Christ, who, because of God's love, came to pay for our sins, to die in our place, 
All those sins that we had committed for which we deserve to be condemned for eternity, Jesus took on Himself. In fact, in that same passage in 1 Peter 2 that I quoted to you, it says that He, in His body, bore our sins on the tree. He died in our place and rose again. And the Scriptures are clear when we trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Not only are our sins forgiven, our account is cleared, but also we are given divine righteousness because God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. This becomes our only claim before the God, the Judge of the universe. No righteousness of our own, but plain and simple, Jesus died for me, I trust in Him. That's it. That's our claim before the throne of God. I wonder if you're right with the judge of the universe today. You can trust in Him as Savior even now. Turn from your sin and trust in what Jesus Christ did for you by dying and rising from the grave. As we all look forward to His judgment, those of us who've trusted in Christ with confidence, knowing that our sins are forgiven and we have the righteousness of God, now live to please Him at the judgment seat of Christ. That when He looks at our works, He would say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And so, like the Apostle Paul, we make it our aim to please Him. We look to His judgment and endure the injustices of this life because here we have a task. And this life is all about living for Him as we prepare for our eternity. When we trust His justice, we can endure injustice. And we overcome our fears by trusting His promises. Our memory verses as a church last week and this week have uh, nicely uh, fit with this text, and so I want to read them to you. I'm still working on them. I almost have them memorized, but not good enough to quote them to you today. So, Psalm 18, verses 30 and 31, As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in Him. For who is God except the Lord, and who is a rock except our God. You see, His way is perfect. We trust in Him. His Word is proven. We hold on to His promises and overcome our fears. But also Philippians 4, 6 and 7, this week's verse, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. What a promise. That as we are fighting worry and anxiety, we come to Him in prayer and His peace overcomes our fears. I wonder, based on the Word of God, what do you know that God wants you to do? What's that step of faith that you're confident from the instructions of Jesus, the commands of Scripture, you know He wants you to do? Like Make disciples of all nations. That's for all of us. Uh, There are many other things as well that we could look to. What is it that you know the Lord Jesus wants you to do? Maybe it's to confess your sin, to come clean and repent of something that you've done, that you've been hiding or resisting. 
Maybe it's to forgive or to reconcile with someone with whom you have a broken relationship. Whatever it might be, I encourage you, based on the Word, be faithful to do what God has called you to do. The next question we ask then is, where is fear keeping you from the things God has called you to do? What fears run through your mind that cause you to pause before obeying? Now, the specific focus of this text is sharing the Word as the Lord Jesus reminds Paul to keep speaking. For us, we could translate that in terms of evangelizing and making disciples and helping people grow in their walk with God. We know the Lord Jesus has called us to do these things. I wonder what fears keep us from obeying Him. I encourage you, as you track down those fears, often you can kind of grab them with the phrase, what if, fill in the blank, what are your what ifs? What are your, I hope this never happens? What are your fears? Grab those fears, jot them down, and then attach a promise from the Lord Jesus Christ to those fears. You see, we overcome our fears with the promises of our great Savior, and He helps us to live for Him as we prepare in this life for the next life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your precious promises. We thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul that in his own time of fear and discouragement, the Lord Jesus came to him and encouraged him with precious promises. And so too, your word has encouraged us today with your precious promises. So help us, like the Apostle Paul, having been encouraged by the word to go and to do what you have called us to do. For you have not given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So may we as a people be faithful, not to fear men, but to fear you alone. May we be faithful to do what you've called us to do, confident in your promises. And we thank you even now for your presence. We know that in Jesus, we can do this because you've got us. We praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.